I don't know why, but there are a ton of people who are sick right now. And you keep trying to spread it to me. Stop. John Warren, right here. He's sick. And so, first service, he moved the podium. So I'm like, when he's done. And then, so Sean's moving the last couple times. So this time he walks by and John's all. Right there. I'll do it over here a little bit. Like, what are you doing? Okay, see if you guys get my joke. Welcome to Element. If you are new, there are Bibles in the back, and planes like to take off right in the middle of the service. Yay. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. They look like this. If you open inside, you'll get some notes. If you can, it's like childproof. If you open it up and look inside, there are notes that go a little deeper into what we're talking about, as well as some questions to go deeper. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It's called Uversion. You click on More and then Events in Uversion, and we'll come up by GPS in your smartphone. You will get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, everything that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? This is Matthew 7, 28 and 29, and it says, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for his teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who live in and under your authority, that we wouldn't fret or freak out in our lives because we would understand and know that you have us, and that we would live our lives in, in great joy knowing that you are a God who has rescued and saved and redeemed, and that would be something the entire world would see, how good you are. Amen. Have a seat. 2017. Way to go. I actually wrote the... I started writing this series that we're going to get to over the next 14, 15 weeks in February of 2016. In February 2016, I didn't know where Element was going to be when this message was going to be delivered. Were we still in our concrete box that is hot in the summer and cold in the winter or hot and muggy in the middle of the winter when the sun actually comes out? Would these messages have to go out via video to our gospel communities? Would we meet in Pete's barn or my backyard? And we got an extra year from our landlord, so that's a really great thing. But you guys can start praying for the city because our city, our plans are still at the city. That's how I feel. You just gave voice to my displeasure. Anyway, so if you can start praying that maybe they would get these things through. We were hoping to have, they said we'd actually have them back before Christmas and we didn't get them. So now we're kind of behind the eight ball. So I start to freak out when things like that happen. So when I started to do this, I'm like, what should we talk about in 2017? How should we start? I'm like, ah, then I realized I shouldn't freak out that God's in control. He has all authority. So that's what we're going to talk about. So when you freak out, there you go, realize God is the one with authority. Uh, it, God's plan A might end up being our plan B, C, or Z, but it's still God's plan A. And it made me think back to when we went through the, in the Sermon on the Mount, that this is how the whole Sermon on the Mount ended, with the idea of Jesus' authority. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew then goes into Matthew 8 and 9, and he will show you 14 different ways that Jesus goes on to prove his authority by what he did. Now, a lot of people in our world today, they speak with authority, but they have nothing to back it up. Anybody remember this old TV show called The Weakest Link? Okay, goodbye, right? The weakest. So they did a study on this show, and they found that they voted, women were voted off more often than men, but women were actually right more often in their answers than men. And they came to the determination that the reason they voted off women more often is women were more timid in their responses when they weren't sure. And men, even when they were wrong, said it with authority. 
my poop doesn't stink. It's like, everybody's poop stinks, buddy. Right? No, it doesn't. And, and somebody's like, oh, what well, about the woman? <laughs> We're stupid. I don't get it. But that's how it works. So open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. What you see Jesus do is he preaches a sermon on the mount, and then he will prove it by his actions. He will show his authority. So I'm going to give you a little refresher on the sermon on the mount, and then we'll hit into Matthew chapter 8. Just before Matthew 8, in Matthew 7, 28, it says, When Jesus finished these sayings, the sayings are the verses of the Sermon on the Mount. It's kind of like sometimes you guys come up to me after a Sunday morning service, and you say, oh, I really liked it when you said this, like one thing out of the entire message. And I, I guess I should be happy you remember anything I say. Okay, so yay, good for you. But it's like one thing. But that's kind of the Sermon on the Mount. You have these sayings. You can take them individually, or you can take them as the entire sermon. And so what we did is we took 45 weeks to go through the Sermon on the Mount because that's what we're like. Three chapters, 45 weeks, you're welcome. Uh, so I'm going to go through. So Matthew chapter 5, you want to flip over there. 5-3, uh, Jesus starts off the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Fortunate are those who are so desperate they rely on God alone. And you have to understand, poor in spirit is not something anybody wanted to be. It wasn't something you wanted to attain. Oh, I'm going to be poor in spirit. And poor in spirit was, your life is in shambles. Everything is broken apart. People judge you. you it's, you're like the worst of the worst. That's the poor in spirit. But what Jesus says is, God loves those people. He reaches out. He redeems. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Fortunate are those who are completely broken, either over their sin or over some loss in their life, because God has said he will come and he will carry their load. Verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Fortunate are those who are gentle and humble and lowly. The kingdom of God belongs to nobodies. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Fortunate are those who have a deep longing and desire in their lives to want what God wills for their life, and they want God's true justice. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Fortunate are those who find it easy to forgive, because they understand that God has forgiven them, and so they forgive others around them. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Fortunate are those who will God's will alone who wants to see God's things come true in their own lives. Verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Fortunate are those who make themselves instruments of peace. They will be seen as God's kids. This is a beautiful thing, thinking of our political climate. Right? Yeah, we as God's kids, if you call yourself a believer, should be a peacemaker. I don't care what side of the thing you fell out on at the end. If you're mad or happy, you're supposed to step into the middle of these things and try and bring peace by how you speak in the midst of these conflicts. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. Glad for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Fortunate are those who are persecuted because they put Jesus above everything else. When you live as a peacemaker, not everybody's going to appreciate it. Not everybody will. But we follow Jesus above everything else. So this is what Jesus kind of starts a sermon on the mount like, and then he goes into being salt and light in the world. When you live out the blessing that God has put into your life, you become salt and light in the world. Then he goes into, in your anger, don't sin. Don't 
put other people down. Not that it's wrong to be angry. It's okay to be angry if it spurs you to righteousness. And then he goes into fulfill the O's that you make. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't go into all the rigmarole. Don't be like, I swear to God, with my hand on a stack of Bible, standing on my grandmother's grave with the American flag behind me, that what I'm telling you is true. You are the weakest link. Goodbye. Jesus says, stop all the rigmarole. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Just live simply like that. And in doing so, he goes into love your enemies because you will love your enemies when you bless and you simply live with your yes being yes and your no being no. Then he talks about giving in a way that doesn't have to be noticed. Although tax season is coming up and if you've given to element in the last year, get a tax deductible receipt. Write it off. Be a good steward. Thus says Jesus. Uh, um, And then Jesus goes into understand that God is like a good father. Then he goes into find your treasure in who he is. And then he goes into when you struggle between faith and doubt. It's okay because God is the author and perfecter and finisher of your faith. All of these sayings progress forward. You can understand them one at a time or you can take them as the whole sermon. It's like a package of milk duds. You can eat just one and it's good. Or you can eat the whole box. And it's awesome, right? It's great. When Jesus is done speaking these things, it says the crowds were astonished at his teaching. The word astonished here is this Greek word expliso. And it's a combination of two Greek words, from and to strike. In some circumstances, it can mean to strike out, expel by a blow. You ever watch world wrestling entertainment enterprises and, and someone goes flying out of the ring? That's that right there. Superfly Jimmy Snuka. Anybody? All right. That was Yeah, I that was my guys when I was growing up. But you're like, I don't know who that is. Yeah, he's Anyway, okay. In this context, what it means is to strike out of self-possession, where you have been so sure about something for so long, and Jesus speaks something, and you're like, oh my goodness, I have been wrong the entire time. And what he says is true and it's right. You ever see Seinfeld? Right? Kramer walks in, you just blew my mind, Jerry! That's what it's like. Jesus speaks these words and the entire crowd, the Sermon on the Mount, are all Kramers. They're all like, whoa, like this. Right? He just blew my mind. That, that, that's what happens to all these people. That's what Matthew is trying to get at. The people who heard Jesus were struck with amazement. They're astonished. This isn't the only time it happened. In John chapter 7, the religious leaders, they are furious with Jesus because he speaks in a way that people relate to. They start to follow him. He loves them. And so what they do is they send their soldiers to go arrest Jesus. The soldiers return to the religious leaders without Jesus, and they say, why did you turn without Jesus? John 7 45 and 46. Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. See, the religious leaders, they're cowards. They don't confront Jesus themselves. They get their posse, these guards that they pay to go and arrest Jesus and bring him back. And they don't bring him back. And the religious leaders say, why? We pay you so we can be cowards. That's my paraphrase. You know, and you, you didn't go get him. The soldiers answer, no one ever spoke like this man. They're like, we have heard you guys teach all day long. Walk, walk, walk. You sound like Charlie Brown's parents. This guy talks, and it is the words of God. The crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority. And that is the beauty of Jesus. Why should we have peace? Why should we have hope? Why should we not fret, no matter what 2017 or whatever year throws at us? Because Jesus has authority. 
John 14, 27, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And this is what Jesus, or the Sermon on the Mount is going into, this idea that Jesus' authority should help us to be a people who are not afraid. Matthew is trying to get you to see the authority of Jesus because it's the authority of a king. We today have such a problem with the word authority. We don't want anybody to tell us what to do. There's a lot of preaching in a lot of churches today where they just want to tell you how Jesus is your buddy. He wants to be your forever friend. Yeah, it's so great. And that's true. He wants to have a relationship with you, but he is also a king. He is a king. Jesus has authority over everything. Think all the way back to Genesis and Noah's Ark. Okay, I know at Noah's Ark we want to paint happy scenes, but God takes out everybody. That's Noah's Ark. We have all the happy scenes of giraffes and their heads hanging out the window going, Wee, ride a boat ride, wee. Someone dropped this off to put in the kids' room, and I go, oh, give me that. I'm going to make fun of it. <laughs> when you want to bring toys, yeah. So, look at this is This is Noah's Ark. Look at the camel. Whee! And the, and the Dumbo. Whee! Oh, it's so cute, right? This is Noah's Ark. It's so wonderful. Nobody paints, like, the floating dead bodies around Noah's Ark. Everybody died. You just blew my mind. That's what happened. What gives God the right to do that? God has authority. All life comes from his hands. It sits in his hands. He can take it whenever he wishes. Do you know there's one Jewish teaching that says that every breath that you take is God breathing into you? Take a deep breath right now. Right? That's a gift from the grace of God. John chapter 11. Jesus' friend Lazarus, he is going to die. And so they ask Jesus, are you going to go save him? And Jesus says these words in John 11. It's for the glory of God that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Oh, isn't that comforting? Really? John chapter 9, there's a guy born blind from birth. Why? It says, so God could display his glory. You know, in Jesus' day, much like today, if there is something wrong in your life, it's because you did something wrong. And that is oftentimes true. If you don't have any money to make rent because you smoked it or drank it all, well, yeah, that's, that's your fault. But being born blind? What? This is what religion does. It's always about you. Try harder, work better. You've got to figure it out. Christianity starts and ends with Jesus and his authority. The crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. You know what their scribes did? They would wear these really long robes, and they would pull them tight around themselves so when the mass of humanity came around them, they wouldn't have to touch anybody else. They thought what it did was it made them more holy and more pure because they didn't have to touch this rabble and this riffraff. And yet that very act cut them off from the people that God called them to be ministers to in the first place. And I think this is why Matthew 8 starts exactly the way that it does. Because the first thing Jesus does after the Sermon on the Mount is he will touch someone with leprosy. So... Open to Matthew chapter 8. That was my opening. Okay, yeah, here we go. Matthew 8, verse 1. When he came down from the mountainside, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. 
So after the Sermon on the Mount, crowds are following Jesus. They've heard him speak about how God wants to touch, interact with the world. And I think Jesus sets this up exactly this way so they run into the guy with leprosy. This would have freaked everybody out. And what does Jesus do? He touches the guy with leprosy. You do not touch someone with leprosy. That's a no-no. If you were looking the wrong way and you tripped over a tree branch and you were falling off a cliff, you're like, ah! And someone with leprosy went like, oh, give me your hand. You'd be like, no! And you would go over the cliff and you would die rather than touch someone with leprosy. That's how bad it is. It, it's kind of like a, a few years ago when, when AIDS comes out and nobody knows what to do with it. We don't understand it and everybody's afraid of it. We don't get near anybody like that. What, what's going to happen? Don't wash your hands in that bathroom because you might actually, like, might actually catch it. it it's, it's contagious. It's incurable. For the most part, it's, it's fatal. It devastates people and has huge social and religious implications. It's the same way. Just think of leprosy that way. Leprosy is technically a a chronic bacterial disease that starts off in the hands or the feet and those nerves. Sometimes it starts in the lining of your nose. And I know if you're like me and neurotic, you're going to go home today and check your nose in the mirror. Like, do I have the leprosy? Like, I watch these commercials on TV that talk about drugs. Do you have this? I'm like, yeah. (laughs) Does your back hurt? All the time. Do Do you go to bed at night and wake up in the morning? I have that! You need this drug. I need this drug. The truth is, anybody can catch leprosy. But children seem to be more susceptible to it than adults. Doctors are still not sure how it's actually spread. Uh, household prolonged contact seems to be the key. It's believed that the germs, I'm not a doctor, so for lack of a better word, germs probably enter the body through the nose or through broken skin on your hands and feet. So I'll give you an erotic real quick because I freaked out when I did this. The symptoms for leprosy include one or more skin lesions that have decreased sensation to touch, heat, or pain, skin lesions that do not heal after several weeks to months, numbness or absence sensation in the hands and arms or feet and legs. And I'm like, that just sounds like getting old. I think what kills us, we all get the leprosy. <laughs> we all die. Isn't this muscle weakness resulting in signs such as foot drop? Like you trip on things all the time. I tripped on my seventh grade graduation. I'm like, I had the leprosy. Who knew? I swear, I catch everything. Leprosy is actually growing rarer in the world today, but it's actually been on the rise in the United States. Forty years ago, there were 900 reported cases in the U.S. Today, there are 7,000. Yeah, so it's actually going, yeah, yeah. And it's all of us as we get older and die. That's what happens. The most bizarre, and this is a side note, doesn't mean anything on my message, but... Uh, for a while, people equated it with vampirism because people who had enough money, the prescription to try and get a little bit better was to lay in a pool of blood. Yeah. Ew, right? Yeah, crazy, crazy. Leprosy is repulsive to everybody who saw it. It's repulsive to the person who had it. It's incurable by human means. You would become religiously unclean if you touch somebody with leprosy, even if you didn't catch it. People with leprosy, they're confined outside the city limits. They usually would live next to the city dump. In Jerusalem, the city dump next to it was called Gehenna. That's where we get our word hell from. So it's like a living hell for them. And they lived there because they could find food and shelter when you're at the dump. In the eyes of the religious leaders, leprosy is this physical counterpart to the spiritual problem of sin. It's a model disease for what sin was. This is why in the Bible, when somebody with leprosy is healed, it's usually called a cleansing. I mean, even look at the words when the guy comes to Jesus. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. Immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. 
That's how they talk about the healing. It's more like a cleansing because of how it came about. Before Jesus shows up, the last person in the Bible to be healed of leprosy was this guy named Naaman in 2 Kings 5. For centuries, no one had healed anybody from leprosy until Jesus shows up. Jesus comes down the hill, Sermon on the Mount, crowds follow him, hodgepodge of humanity, field workers, religious elite, foreigners, natives, and then here comes this guy with leprosy, and they all freak out, because it says, and behold, the word behold is a term of exclamation, it's like, oh my goodness, did you see, some of you are falling asleep, and you're like, what, and behold, a leper came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. What's really interesting here is this word for knelt is this word proskuneo. In Greek, there are five main words used for worship. And surprise, none of them have anything to do with worship or with music. Uh, the most common word in the New Testament for worship is this word proskuneo. It's used 60 times in the New Testament. And it, where we get our word prostrate from, where you bow down like a king or a leader, you bow down and people kiss their feet. This is what this means, where this guy, he sees Jesus, maybe he hears him, you know, from the outskirts of the Sermon on the Mount, and then he sees Jesus come walking, and he goes before him, and he bows down and worships Jesus, the outcast, the one no one would talk to, the one no one would get near. He's the one that gets it. He worships Jesus, and he says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. He doesn't tell Jesus what to do. He doesn't say, oh, I've got enough faith, so you've got to heal me. He doesn't bargain. If you heal me, I'll follow you forever. He doesn't do any coulds, woulds, or shoulds, just if it's in your will and for your glory. Guys, if that's what leprosy does, I pray you all get it. Not really, but you know what I mean, right? That, that kind of thing. Ray Stedman comments about how this comment from this guy indicates that he had an awareness of something bigger in his leprosy. Ray Stedman wrote this. He says, The scriptures are very clear that sometimes God wills us to be sick. Not that this is an expression of his ultimate desire for men, but that given the circumstances in which we now live and the fallen nature of humanity, there are times when God wills for his children to pass through physical affliction. Sometimes there are people who will say, Well, if you're sick, it means you don't have enough faith or God is not favorable towards you. But I don't think that's true. Look at the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul had this affliction in his life. We don't know what it was, but he prayed to God to take it away, and God said no. In 2 Corinthians 12, 9, this is God's response to Paul. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Paul understands that God wants him to go through the things he was going through to grow him for a purpose and a reason, so he trusts God. When I wrote this message, I had a cold at the time, and I wrote, maybe this is why I get colds all the time. God knows I'm spiritual, and I can handle it. You know what's really funny? I haven't gotten sick since then. So maybe it's displeasure. I don't know. But ah! the scriptures are clear. Not everyone is healed all the time. So you got this guy with leprosy. Even in the midst of his disease of being an outcast, he apparently has some sense in this that there's a purpose. He says, if you will, you can make me clean. He doesn't mean if you're in a good mood, if you got up on the right side of the bed, if you got enough healing juice left over. What the text reads is, really, if it's not out of line with the purpose of God, if it's not violating some purpose God's working out, then you can make me clean. He does not doubt Jesus' power. He submits himself to Jesus' will. I think we need to be like this guy with leprosy. Trust that God can do whatever he wants. We should trust him because he has authority, but he is also good, and we know he is good. So Matthew then tells you, and Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean, and immediately his leprosy was cleansed. 
So Matthew is showing the authority of Jesus here, but I also like the parallel passage of this. In Mark 1.41, it tells you before Jesus does this, he's moved with pity. He's moved with pity. Uh, This has also been translated as moved with anger at at what sin had done to the world by causing leprosy. But literally, this word he meant moved in the bowels. When you feel something so strongly that your stomach hurts. Maybe, Maybe you love somebody so deeply that when you're not with them, your stomach hurts because you want to be with them. It's this idea. And eventually this wording came to be as the use for moved with compassion. With compassion, because if you don't have compassion, you have spiritual constipation because your bowels aren't moving. It's really kind of funny, and nobody gets it. So i got to explain the joke to you. Whatever. Okay, so Jesus touches the guy, and he shows everyone in the crowd what he had been teaching all along that God cares for, and God reaches out to those who we deem far away. God cares about the poor in spirit. Jesus seeks them out. He touches them. Jesus doesn't always lay his hands on everybody he heals, but he does lay his hands on this person with leprosy. And that's really significant because touching something that was unclean would make you unclean. Haggai chapter 2 talks about this. Let me put this in a way you might understand. Imagine you have a doctor, and he's going in for surgery. What does a doctor do? They scrub down, they get really clean, they put on their gloves and their gown, and they go into surgery. If a doctor does all of that, he starts walking into surgery, and somebody walks in the door, and they're like, Hey, Joe! And Joe the surgeon's like, Oh, hey! And shakes their hand. What's Joe the surgeon got to do? Go wash again, right? The other guy who Joe touches doesn't become sterile because Joe touched him. Joe becomes unclean, and he's got to go wash again. Hear me on this. This is amazing. The only way you can touch someone or something unclean and not become unclean yourself is to make the other person or thing clean. Matthew is showing you the authority of Jesus because he is the only one who could have touched a person and transfer his cleanness to them because he was God, because of the upcoming cross and the resurrection. When Jesus touched the guy with leprosy, when he heals this guy, he's making another claim to deity. It's beautiful. So why does Jesus then say, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer uh, the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them? I'll give you three reasons why. Number one, Jesus said that in the Sermon on the Mount, he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So he's fulfilling the law. Secondly, the purpose of going to the priest and showing yourself to the priest was to say the Messiah is actually present. And thirdly, the priest is the guy who would then reintroduce this man back into his family and into his community again. Leprosy is incurable by human ability. So the priest would have to recognize that something is going on here. It's a sign the Messiah is present. It's an announcement of that. In Matthew 11, John the baptizer's disciples, they go to Jesus and they say, Are you the Messiah? You know what Jesus' answer is? What have I been doing? What do you see? He quotes Isaiah 35, and one of the things he quotes is, People with leprosy are cleansed. It's a way to say, I am the Savior of the world. Jesus does this directly after the Sermon on the Mount. He's showing us what it means to live out that authority that he claims, to live out the words of the Sermon on the Mount. It's that true grace reaches down to the lowest of our perceived levels. Compassion is always necessary when we deal with people in this world because we all fail. We all have spiritual leprosy. We all make terrible mistakes. We all commit terrible sins. And for some reason, our natural inclination when all of this takes place is to push other people away, to want to build a wall, to only invite those in who are like us, just like the Pharisees. But Jesus shows when you live 
out His authority, when you live out truly the words of the Sermon on the Mount, it means we move towards compassion. So I think for us, we need to be like the guy with leprosy and say, Lord, if you are willing. We need to look at everything that comes into our lives and realize that God has the ability to heal, heal, but God also has the ability to say no. We need to recognize that we don't always know what is right and the right timing and the right way, but God does because he's good. We live under his authority. That's a great way to start 2017. I think sometimes for us it's easier to believe in God's power than God's mercy. A lot of times we think God is, is so powerful he's going he's gonna to smash us and crush us, and we don't really look to his mercy. And this sometimes leads people in two different directions. Hypercharismatics say God's got to heal everybody all the time. Cessationists say God doesn't ever heal anybody. When the truth is, is that God is a God of mercy. And God is going to do what he does when he does because he is simply that good. Jesus not only has the ability to save, he has the ability to command things in our lives. This is why he goes on to prove his authority. He has authority over our circumstances and over our lives. This is why for us as believers, faith in Jesus should be followed by obedience to the things he calls us to. Not that we're saved by obedience, but that our God has been so good to love us. We love him back by actually doing the things that he calls us to live in because he is that good. Ray Stedman wrote this. He says, obedience is preferred over impulse. What he means by that is a lot of people follow Jesus and for two weeks like, oh, I love Jesus. Woo, all on fire. And two weeks later, Peter out. Right? That's, that's not obedience. That's impulse. Really loving Jesus is like a book Eugene Peterson wrote on discipleship. He called it a long obedience in the same direction. Through the highs, through the lows, we just trust. And though we will trip and fall, and though we'll mess up and do some crazy things, we just keep following Jesus because he's the one who walks with us and carries us along. He is the one who has redeemed us. He is the one who is good. And that's discipleship and obedience. We simply follow and trust because he is good. How do we know Jesus just doesn't have authority and that, and that he's good? Because you look at what he did in his life. He cared for people, he touched people, he loved people, he made them clean, just like he still does now. That is a God who has authority and yet is good. So much better than we could ever understand. Jesus is good. And he has all authority. And if you don't remember anything else, like you want to take a little tidbit, that's what you remember. Because that will take you through the rest of your life. He is good and he has authority. And we are a people who understand that because he has rescued and redeemed and saved us. He has sought us out. He has brought us home because he is that good. Just like he came up from the Sermon on the Mount and touched the guy that nobody else would touch. Maybe you feel like that's you. Like, I'm so horrible. I'm so terrible. Why would God love me? Right. Why would God love any of us? Because God is that good. And he has the authority to say, you are loved. You are a child of mine. That's the goodness of who he is. This is why we talk about communion every week. It all goes together. You break that cracker like Jesus' body was broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and me as his people. Because in doing this, he takes away that all that stands between us and him and us and each other. 
and we get to have real and true relationships again because he has the authority to call us clean because of what he did at the cross and the resurrection. We get to be a people who live in grace and goodness and hope. We get to have joy because our God is good. Or just sit there and stare at me, whatever. I don't want to get an amen for something like that. You guys, you weirdos. The band's going to come up, as they do. We're going to play some songs. We're going to invite you to take communion. There'll be some people in the back to pray with you if you need prayer. Maybe you feel like you are unclean, and your, your life has no hope to it. They would love to pray with you about this, because Jesus longs to make you clean. He longs to restore you, longs to call you a child of his, longs to bring you into his family, longs to love you like you have never been loved. And that doesn't always mean giving you everything you want. It means he will grow you. It means sometimes he will put things in your life that are not comfortable. So you will grow into the person that he intends for you to be and the person he knows you need to be. Our God is, again, that good. To say no to us. To say wait to us. And many times to say yes. There are offering boxes on the sidewall in the back and we give because God is so good to us. Uh, Giving is part of our worship. We do not pass the plate. It's a response to what he has done. And so hopefully you respond and we can still build a building one day. (laughs) There's food in the back. Grab something to eat. (laughs) And uh, when you grab something to eat, just think about this. Maybe go out with your friends this week and talk through some of these questions. I think a good question to ask somebody is, how do you think the guy with leprosy would have responded if Jesus said, no, it's not God's time for you? How would he, or would he have still been like, okay, okay, I'm going to love you anyway because I know you love me. I think that would have been his response. Our response is, how dare you say no to me? You know, ah! But I think, I think that guy probably would have understood it because he probably lived in the midst of this disease and heard Jesus' words. And the beauty is that Jesus did cleanse him. Jesus did heal him. And I think just like we are all a people who are stuck in the midst of this spiritual leprosy that eats away at our souls, God will cleanse that. He will allow things into our lives physically that that cause us to grow and trust him more and more. But he does heal us spiritually, deep in our souls, and sets us as his children in his family. And then grows us how we need to grow. So we should be a people that simply trust him and live under his good and gracious authority. So we're going to talk about for the next 15 weeks, 14 after this week. So there you go. Let's pray. Father, um, thank you so much for loving us like you do for the authority you carry that there is nothing and no one greater than you and so in our lives we can live and trust that everything has been sifted through your hands the things that that we don't like that that you can even come in and redeem the sins that other people have committed against us because you will grow us You will cleanse us. You will restore us. Teach us to live under the authority of who you are. That we would trust you in all things. That our hearts and our minds and our lives would be laid down at your feet. And that we would be a people who would understand your holiness and your goodness and your grace. That it would be more than songs that we sing. It would be lives that are lived out honoring you. Move us to be a people who live out your goodness 
in front of others. Father, for those in this room this morning who are maybe struggling with something, where maybe they, they feel unclean and lost, I ask that you would remind them of your authority to speak into and over that. And that you long to bring them into relationship with you. And that you would draw people to you and, and you would melt hearts. And you'd rebuild and restore us so that we live as your people because you have been so good to us. We ask these things in your son's good name. Amen.